Hey listeners, Mike here. Quick introduction for this week's episode. It is the second half of our Frankenstein episode. If you haven't already, make sure you go back and listen to part one, where we discuss our love for the Universal Monsters, in particular our love for Frankenstein and when we were first introduced to those early black and white monster movies and what they mean to us today. And then after that, Brian and I go pretty deep into what it took to get Frankenstein to go from page to screen. It's a really fun discussion. We go right into the background of everything, as only the pod and the pendulum can. So if you haven't already, make sure you listen to part one. But without any further ado, here is the second half of that episode with Garrett, Brian, Devon, and myself. So hope you enjoy it, and hope you enjoy this whole series on the Universal Frankenstein films. All right, now that we've talked a little bit about how Frankenstein got made, let's talk a little bit about the movie itself, what we see on screen. And I kind of want to open the discussion with something we talked a little bit about when we were talking about our initial thoughts. That brief time between Dracula and Frankenstein, how much of a leap there had been made between the way the pictures look and how I kind of mentioned with Dracula, it looks like there's, it's a silent picture and it looked like a stage production, which it was like Dracula. The movie was adapted, like was adapted from the stage production with Frankenstein. There's this much greater sense of scale. There's a much larger variety of the sets. I think there's a lot. Whale does a much better job of catch capturing like a much more dynamic motion picture here mm-hmm. um going back to the opening scene itself and devon you were talking about this that sense of like light and dark the shadows that are cast in that graveyard like going back to like really using pulling from german expressionism uh and bringing that to like american cinema and how whale was able to capture that yeah i mean there was even like a difference in when people were consuming film at this time you know versus um before when you know with the kind of looks of like kind of showing people that like you know this is like introducing the idea of like cinema transporting you like into a world uh, so it's like it, it does feel like, you know, like, you know, a lot of films beforehand did kind of look like plays, you know, that were filmed versus this does feel uh, a little bit more cinematic. And even like the little introduction at the beginning uh, kind of sets the table for that a little bit in an interesting way of uh, kind of it, it was, it's like kind of like a transition thing. Like people are used to the stage. So you like kind of give them that a little bit, but then like kind of the way that it presents that like, okay, what you're about to watch, you are watching a movie. You're, you're going into this different world with these characters uh, versus, you know, what they're traditionally used to. And I think a lot of that world building element had been, um, had gotten, had happened during the silent era. So you have, you know, sort of a lot of big fantasies and things like that. So that happened. What shackled it back down to being, more stage bound was sound frankly um the sound era at its beginnings was rough uh there are very few great movies of the early sound era between 1927 and 1931 uh, because it they were just so locked down to microphone placement um recording was 
pretty young. Um, but even the year 1931 itself, I find really interesting because you I I usually use a couple of examples. I use Dracula and Frankenstein, just looking at the difference between the two way the two films are staged and look and are shot. Um, the scenes with camera movement in Dracula are almost all silent. Whereas the dialogue scenes are very stagey with stationary camera. Um, Frankenstein, you have a lot of layered sound. Like you can hear the wedding bells ringing when the, when the, uh, the, toast is being given, you know, with the servants and stuff, for example. Um, another example in another genre would be uh, the gangster genre. You have Little Caesar and the Public Enemy released in the same year, and it's the same deal. Uh, Little Caesar is a good movie, but it looks really stagey uh, by comparison to the Public Enemy that's got, you know, just especially in the soundtrack is really, really dynamic. And it, 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 it's so... Um, uh, Bill Wellman was being so almost seems to be so experimental that he's kind of showing off a little bit in that movie, but it's, it's fun. It's a cool movie. I really like, um, but I think those are an apt comparison because they both came from 1930. All came, all four of those films came from 1931 and the earlier ones have sort of a similar feel and the later ones have sort of a similar thing going on too. So Brian, were there like any innovations in 31 that allowed for these like giant leaps forward in, being able to adapt these stories and to make them feel look and feel more like movies as we would recognize them. Or was it just a matter of getting sea legs under them? Cause I know like part of the difficulty, like transitioning mm-hmm. to talking pictures was like, just like the, the major actors of the day weren't used to talking on screen sure. and like they weren't suited for it. So a lot of them transitioned out of, acting because they right. weren't suited for talking film was it just a matter of getting sea legs under them or i think that was part of it for sure um you have uh I, and just thinking of also just uh, innovations in sound recording like uh, also bill wild bill wellman uh william wellman um invented the boom mic essentially mm-hmm. and that was uh, an important thing um to you know just putting a mic on a on a broomstick or a fishing pole and putting it over the actor's heads, you know, was this huge innovation. Um, for example, you didn't have to sit around and talk to a mic. You could have someone just off screen, just out of range, um, can, uh, getting the sound in there. Um, so I think that adds to the ability for there to be more camera dynamism as well. Um, and so you, and also I think that uh, you have a great director who's willing to work to solve the problems, you know, uh, I think that Todd Browning is a good director and a capable director. I think his heart was not in Dracula. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are reasons for that. Um, He had just lost a dear friend in the death of Lon Chaney Sr. Um, And I I think that you look at some of his earlier movies, they're very energetic, very dynamic, but that one is just, not though I like Dracula. I, I'm I'm not trying to shit on Dracula because I do like that movie a lot. But I don't think that he had the same fire that Whale did in making this yeah. movie. And Whales we talked about didn't come to this picture 
necessarily wanting to do it. Like he kind of right. had to be strong armed into it and then fell in love with it a bit as he got creative freedom to do what he wanted to do mm-hmm. and make it the way he wanted to make it. That's Garrett, right. you were talking before about like the timeless feel of this movie and making it feel like a fairy tale. And I think that's like really appropriate. And I, I think about this like opening scene in particular, like when you're, in that graveyard and you have this like gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous set piece, but it's so hard to pin down exactly not only like where this movie takes place. Like you get this like vague idea that it's somewhere in Eastern Europe, like either Germany or Austria, but also like when this movie takes place, because like, you know, it, they do look like peasants, yet you have like Colin Clive and uh, wearing, and uh, I'm sorry, Henry and Victor uh, wear in Waldman wearing very modern clothes. And you have like a modern university, and yet everybody else looks like they're lifted right, straight out of like Anderson's fairy tales, mm-hmm. like they've been airlifted in. Yep. How do you think that kind of adds to like the uh, atmosphere here and the timelessness of this? Film? I mean, it's really twofold because it's not just the atmosphere. It's also the text of the film. It's what the film's trying to communicate and, uh, about class. I think it's really wise to have such a vivid disparity between class and having those who are, you know, more well to do in these more modern uh, kind of contemporary clothes for the time. Meanwhile, everybody else again looks like they just hopped out of the DeLorean you know, from the 1600s. There's such a, a, a disparity between the two that I also do feel exactly what you were talking about kind of gives it this sort of out of time sort of dreamlike quality and that, that opening sequence that you were talking about um, is like uh, sort of the opening sequence. There's also a prologue too, to where like a warning is given to the audience, which I think is oh, such yeah. a vibe. <laughs> That's so great. Love um, that. that actor also appears later in the film uh, as like uh, the scientist. So I love Vulcan, that he yeah. shows up to kind of give everybody uh, a fair warning to you know exit if they if they'd like to. It's almost like a haunted mansion style. It's fantastic. Um, but that was actually a pairing. Just if you don't mind me jumping in, that no was worries. actually a pairing to go with the ending of, of Dracula. Dracula. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so you've heard this. Okay, so Edward Van Sloan plays Van Helsing, Mm -hmm. and at the end of Dracula, there was an epilogue that was recorded where he says, you know, don't worry, um, we've shown you these things, but hey, they aren't real. But then he kind of winks and goes, but are they? (laughs) You know, and um, so this was sort of like, but that footage, unfortunately, is lost, but... um, this opening is very much that idea. And that has been parodied to death too. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Kevin first Simpsons. Yeah. The first like four uh, seasons of, of the Treehouse of horror start with that. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's all kinds but, of things that do that. Yeah. It's great. But Think of like your man, Wes Craven uh-huh. talking in last house on the left saying like, tell yourself it's only a movie right it's only a movie uh-huh. and that's exactly same thing yeah. where this tradition well, comes it, from I like it's it, edward van sloan coming out and telling the audience it's only a movie folks wink wink nudge nudge don't worry about well, it well i will also say i think it even predates that a little bit and kind of goes to the exact type of storytelling that would create something like 
Frankenstein the novel. Like Mary Shelley wrote that out of kind of her sharing scary stories with friends. And it literally Mm -hmm. like she thought of one that was so scary she couldn't go to bed, you know, and Mm -hmm. eventually ended up writing this book. So I think it's also kind of this gather around the fire. Like, let me tell you a scary story, which again kind of adds to the timelessness of it. Right. Like that verbal storytelling. I love that's also not like bullshit, though, because I mean, uh, you know, I think it is uh, fair to give people in the 30s a warning like, hey, if you don't like dead kids, uh, this one might not be for you. They're kind of ahead of the curve on like, does the dog die? If you like like, dead kids, though, boy, do we have the movie for you. (laughs) Well, they wouldn't have seen, though, in the 30s, they would not have seen Maria. I think the preview audience would have. Mm -hmm. But that scene was cut from the film and then it wasn't until mm-hmm. not until like the dvd release maybe it, that it was like so it was thought lost there was lost. yeah there was a restored version that came out in the 90s on vhs yeah that i owned okay um, but uh that was the first one where um the the scene where she actually goes into the water that was the first time that was seen uh in mm-hmm. you know mm you know, 60 years at that point. Um, so it was still missing some of the other dialogue, yeah. but it had, uh, it had that. Well, I take it back. Audiences in thirties were no. wimps. I take it but back. <laughs> to your point though, you're seeing like hung bodies and hunchbacks cutting them down and like brains being scooped out. Like you're seeing some wild shit in the thirties that you're not typically getting in movies. Well, and then I mean, beyond so, like the kind of the gratuitous violence of it all, which I would say, even though they're in the same year, I would say is certainly more than Dracula. I do think oh, the yeah, film yeah. also is just covering these more taboo topics, right? The, mm-hmm. the One of the main characters in the film says, I know what it feels like to be God, which is also oh, like a we'll very talk controversial line as mm-hmm. well. So yeah, I think that this movie is, you know, route with, with uh, you know, uh, scandalousness like on on both sides literal and more like kind of a metaphorical sense we'll definitely talk about that as we talk more about our main man kind of henry and one of the main conflicts Mm -hmm. of this movie but i do love that you do have like edward van sloan coming out to this to to like kind of give the audience a little a little pat on the Mm -hmm. back and let them know everything is going to be okay and hold almost like a a precursor to content warnings a little trigger little trigger warning before so this is not a new thing. yeah and then the scene following this that graveyard scene that you were mentioning i really like too it establishes this great visual language for the film if you look Mm -hmm. there's not a lot of straight lines in the in that scene everything is kind of at a slant Mm -hmm. which is such an expressionist uh style with these dark shadows and these very stark contrasts between light and dark and one of my favorite details is dr frankenstein is when he's shoveling the dirt out of the grave he's throwing it in death's face which is like the mm-hmm. statue right behind him so i think that that film uh, that uh, opening scene sets the tone for this film it establishes a visual language it kind of establishes one of the main sort of uh character arcs you know with with dr frankenstein as well as giving it this sort of gather around the fire i'm about to tell you a scary Mm -hmm. story sort of feeling all within what two minutes three minutes (laughs) and and not only setting the tone for this film but again this is like james whale kind of setting the tone for universal you know features going forward because i mean for my money uh between this uh i absolutely love the invisible man and him bringing in you know the effects angles and stuff and then bride of frankenstein i think he uh, kind of has some of the most uh, distinct uh, directorial personality uh, that he brings to these films. And like this one in, 
particular with uh, like you said like the way that uh the way that he frames certain things and like a lot of uh you know uh, long camera movements yeah. uh which yeah. wasn't you know super common back in the day either like james whale just had that sauce <laughs> yeah whale goes on a run yeah between this the old dark, dark house, house old that... dark house is so great man it's so great we've talked about it a couple of times on the podcast it's appeared in my movie math at least twice <laughs> before there was james wan there was james whale ain't that the and truth folks that is a t-shirt idea <laughs> that i think we need to do all right that is something that we need to do. Um, we need to will that we're into start, the universe. We are, we're going to start selling merch here. Yeah. I think we could do that. Yeah. I think we can make that work. Yeah. Um, here's one of the things I love about this movie. And it's a lot of it is it just boils down to how Karloff portrays the monster. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is really a movie that doesn't have... It's a horror movie that doesn't have a villain. That there are no real quote-unquote bad guys or villains in this movie the closest you could argue would be fritz um poor dear fritz who is a bit of a sadist i mean Mm -hmm. fair to say poor dear fritz he's an asshole (laughs) yeah yeah, he's 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 he's, um disabled he's got something probably not getting the best treatment you know he's got some issues to work out and he's just taking it out on the wrong guy so you know i mean i think if there was therapy for fritz back then maybe he would have had a better outcome is what i'm saying but i think this is a movie that doesn't have like a true villain like karloff as the monster is not a villain but neither is henry frankenstein Like, Henry Frankenstein is not your typical mad scientist. He's certainly not what Peter Cushing would become in the Hammer Frankenstein movies, who's a straight-up psychopath that goes around, like, murdering people Mm -hmm. and setting up murders and is amazing in those movies. But this is just a very sad movie all around. I think, Garrett, you put it really well in some of your notes here. The real, like, villain of this movie is, like, shitty parenthood like not being able to own up to your mistakes not taking ownership for your actions Mm -hmm. and kind of like trying to pass the buck yeah and i think you're exactly right it really just comes down to harloff's performance it hinges on that the sympathy he's able to have um for his eyes as well as the terror that he's able to imbue with his physicality and his enormous hands and feet which i think is Mm -hmm. such a great detail the the, his introduction in this film has got to be one of the most iconic in all of cinema right that turn to the camera with that uh, shadow on him it's that's that's iconic right there certainly one of the most iconic images um, of the 20th century but yeah i think that this movie it's about a deadbeat dad man it's, it's about a deadbeat dad who's not really around uh and creates this thing just because he can right he doesn't it's really Mrs. have Doubtfire. the responsibility uh, and the kind of wherewithal to want to take care of the thing he's opened Pandora, pandora's box mostly mm-hmm. based on ego and that is kind of the end of it and i will disagree i do think that this film does have a clear villain it maybe isn't this machiavellian you know mustache twirling bad guy but it's society right it's those who are in power those who are making these decisions and those who um, are kind of affecting everyone um below them i think it's really apt and i think somebody put it in the notes here that Frankenstein and, and uh, Frankenstein's monster and, and the, uh, how many times are we going to do that this episode? Let's <laughs> call it Frankenstein. Uh, start so, at Alley. Start at Alley. Um, let's let's say this, <laughs> listeners. 
we're probably going to interchangeably call the monster Frankenstein, the monster and Frankenstein's monster. Yeah. Do not come at we us. We, we These are long we episodes. <laughs> we know. And you're getting this entertainment for free. Uh, so yes. give us a brief. Um, Make a drinking game out of it. If you there get, you go. If you, if there you there need we go. To, have you know, some fun. That'll keep turns, you happy. Turn some yeah. fun into it. But yeah, the monster <laughs> having this look that is of the working class, I think realistically it was probably Dr. Frankenstein had a suit in his closet he doesn't wear anymore <laughs> and he threw it on the monster. But this ill-fitting, you know, uh, dirty kind of lumbering man. I don't think kind of looks upper class. I think he looks kind of lesser than. And I think that this film is a lot about taking care of those kind of below you, whether it is this kind of parental relationship or in, in you know, the eyes of societal uh, uh, kind of mm-hmm. relationships. Uh, there, there's, there's a lot going on in the film that is quite different than the book. I think that this movie goes in a really different thematic direction. My one complaint, and it is genuinely my one. I think that this movie kind of soils all of that because the film starts off with this weird eugenics sort of angle with the bad brain, good brain mm-hmm. kind of removes mm-hmm. the sense of morality out of the film. It really kind of undercuts its argument there because it does seem like it's yeah. firmly arguing on the side of uh, mm-hmm. nature, not nurture, where I think the rest of the film is communicating nurture. It's a weird dissonance of a moment. It's there. a carryover over from yes yeah it's a it's a carry it's a carryover from the garrett ford robert flory uh uh script um it's probably there to appease the censors i know that the Hayes code was not enforced but it did exist um and they needed to get approval and villains or characters like this had to have um certain motivations or reasons but I think Whale does a great job sort of saying, okay, forget about that. You know? Yeah, because like Clive's Victor gives a look when that happens. Like, okay, like it doesn't really matter. It's like, just when dead he finds tissue out, is what he says. It's just dead tissue. I mean, I think the film still gets to have it a little bit of both ways to like kind of make still to have the argument of it being truly, you know, nature versus nurture when a lot when I think he is, you know, vastly more interested in the nurture part and i think that's kind of what comes through in the way that you know society can you know not only shape you know a person uh whether it be you know the monster not being exposed to other people and you know the outside world and kind of learning things and that's like kind of what made you know poor things so uh special because like oh this is what would have happened if you know uh the monster got to take a little vacation and learn some things uh you know so it's like it's kind of that but then it's also society uh weighing on henry uh because it kind of gives him these insecurities and like this uh this kind of expectation to like you know as he kind of keeps talking up this ultimate thing he's gonna do he's also in the back of his brain like i still also gotta pull it off i gotta do it and then when the you know the monster doesn't turn out the way he wants it to be then you know he kind of starts backtracking on some of his own ideologies and things like that uh so it's like you you still get to kind of have uh it a little bit both ways like throughout the the past year uh two like themes that like kind of stood out in a lot of movies that i really loved are ones that explore you know that accountability of like kind of where does the the never-ending chain start of you know is it this person's fault or is it this event's fault or is it this? Uh, And also like, you know, kind of personal autonomy of like kind of uh, being able to grow into your own person by your own ways, you know, versus the way that others kind of dictate the environment for you. 
it's it's a carryover from the novel in that like in the novel when Victor lays eyes on the monster, he immediately disowns him. He runs away from it and di- abandons the creature. Oh, gotta go right get away. some cigarettes from the gas station. <laughs> exactly. It's like I, I tell the joke, and this did not happen in my real life. Like, yeah, like. You know, one day my dad played hide and seek with me and 20 years later we found him in California Uh, like that did not happen. But I love that joke. Um, That's kind of what Victor Frankenstein does in the novel. And here, like Henry, he's so consumed with this idea of like, can I do this? Can I create life from the dead? Can I play God? He never asked the question like, well, what would I do after that? What would I do? Like, once I create life, what is my moral and ethical responsibility to this human, to this being, once I do that? Because he has no interest in being a parent. He just, he's interested in creating. Yeah, and I think that this story, too, is really uh, a good example of the timelessness of stories, again, being passed down and altered throughout um, history. And I think one example of this, and uh, I'm not drawing any unique, uh, it's literally the title of the book, but this being kind of a parallel between the story of uh, the monster and Prometheus or Adam in the, the Garden of Eden, you know, pick one about this, the person who kind of, you know, chased this enlightenment or this wisdom, um, obtain it. And then now what, you know, what, now that you've opened it, what are you going to do? We just saw uh, the story again um, a couple of times this year with poor things and Oppenheimer, both of which have a lot of um, parallels with, with uh, Frankenstein and Prometheus. Of course, again, Oppenheimer and Prometheus, not saying anything new here. It's literally in the title of the book, <laughs> the book uh, yeah. but it stands to reason that there is a reason that we're still talking about this film nearly a hundred years later. And it's about the timelessness of these stories that have been passed on throughout generations. Yeah. Yeah. I think Brian, what you saw your, oops, sorry, uh, you were going to just jump in. So jump. Yeah. In. Uh, what Garrett's saying about the deadbeat dad thing, I think that's so well set up in that first um, encounter with the monster. The first time the monster shows up and uh, Frankenstein opens the light for him to see and the monster's reaching up for it. And he's like getting agitated and desperate to reach it. And then he just closes the light off again from, and then he sort of, and then the monster just kind of reaches out for him, you know, with that, those great hand gestures that he does. And he's so helpless. Like he just wants affection. He wants direction. He wants something. Mm -hmm. And he says, and then, you know, what happens immediately Fritz comes in uh, Fritz is powerless. He's a cast below everyone except for the monster. He can agitate mm-hmm. the monster. And then, um, my gosh, he ends that scene by telling Fritz to leave it alone. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, leave it alone. And he yeah. doesn't leave it alone out of any sense of sympathy for the monster, mm-hmm. but out of aggravation that the monster can mm-hmm. do more. Yeah. That he's almost like he's upset that the monster is so simple yeah. and he turns his face away from it mm-hmm. brian, from brian that scene yeah. that you were mentioning i think is also yeah. a, a good example of this film using the idea of light in really fascinating ways light and yeah. fire and lightning kind of interchangeably mm-hmm. i love that yeah. scene the, those that great shot of his hands kind of reaching at the light coming down from the moon and then fritz comes in with the, the torch and scares him away kind of establishing mm-hmm. early on that um that uh the what will eventually kill him uh, 
kill him in, in quotes, um, right. but also <laughs> kind of the duality, right? The uh, yeah. uh, enlightenment, fire, enlightenment as an, you know, uh, an example of enlightenment. It can be good light. It can be, uh, it can illuminate a room and it can, you know, allow somebody to create or it can destroy as well. And I think it's drawing a parallel between that and people. People can create, but people can also destroy. Right. And our empathy so quickly turn to the monster in that scene. He's been on screen for a minute, minute and a half. Mm-hmm. And then we're like, oh, we're on his side. And a lot of that has right. to do with Karloff, I think. And you you contrast that with our introduction to him. And I think you mentioned Devon, like that opening shot we get of him when he backs into the room. And you have no reason for him to back into the room. It's a kind of an odd way mm-hmm. to introduce him but to have him turn around and then you get those three quick cuts and you Mm -hmm. get those three quick cuts in order to frighten the audience because you like pull in super tight on Karloff's face and that wonderful makeup. And what makes it work is like that heavily littered gaze and like audiences have never seen anything like this. And I still think that like Pierce's makeup for Frankenstein is like the greatest makeup job for any movie monster ever like almost a hundred years later because it allows for like unlike say like a you know i always love the jason Voorhees reveal at the end of a friday the 13th but it doesn't necessarily allow for a performance under there it's just like really cool monster makeup karloff is allowed to give a real performance under like a really cool makeup job and so Um, much of it is just expanding and building upon his face i mean it's just mm -hmm. exaggerating certain features and that's why uh, it's so and that's why i don't think anyone else quite pulled it off as well yeah either you know Oh, not too we'll many people got a face like that. not too many people got a face like him. I mean, it's, no, it, and even right. under the, all the makeup, he's still a good looking chap. Not gonna lie, uh, the monster <laughs> would still would. I could make a case for him. Um, <laughs> he could get. I, it. I think his physicality that he brings to it as well is really key in humanizing him because yes. I think it would mm-hmm. be easy for him to be just a robot, you know, just mm-hmm. kind of walk so mm-hmm. like RoboCop in a way. But I think what he's able to do is make it feel human, right? Allowing mm-hmm. us as an audience to engage with it and what a, what a great way to introduce us to that character as you were saying than just immediately you know crash to his eyes and seeing that the you know kind of the window to his soul so to speak not to, I get, mean, not to yeah. get too corny but you know it's 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 all there it it is what gets a little disappointing as you start to get to like ghost of frankenstein and house of frankenstein is that the monster literally just he kind of just becomes a minion Mm -hmm. that it's like igor or a mad scientist just basically points the monster in a direction Mm -hmm. and says like hulk smash and that's what the monster does in a way that's kind of poetic too isn't it right that that's what he became this thing that was initially sympathetic has been hammered into submission like it's kind of pessimistic but ain't ain't that the truth (laughs) i guess but i think what you get here in this first movie and especially when we get to bride is so much more nuanced and wonderful and even like son of to a lesser extent like by son of like karloff is kind of like i'm over this a little bit um I think the thing with the monster is he's only violent against others as retaliation. Like when they strike out against him, like Fritz is like really sadistic in his treatment of the monster, as we've said. And that's why he suffers that fate. Like That's why 
Karloff's monster strikes out against him. Mm-hmm. We talked about the criminal brain. Um, the monster is also always learning. Uh, when Waldman and Henry lie in wait for him, when they open his the door to his prison cell, he doesn't come lumbering out and try to escape. He stops and he looks around. Mm-hmm. He knows that, like, this is a little too easy. Like, why would I be able to get out so easily? And then later, after he kills Waldman and he's trying to make his way out of the castle, he sees that door and he recognizes it as, like, the door that kept him in prison earlier. Mm-hmm. And he immediately kind of makes like a disimproving gesture towards it and makes his way to another door. Like the monster is very quickly learning. And I think that's one of the things that I kind of like love about this Karloff is his monster evolves throughout this movie. And and, and, and you it, see that in his physical performance mm-hmm. as well, because I mean, like, you know, obviously like the, when he's introduced, like kind of hobbling around, which one, iconography there too i mean who as a kid has not you know done a stiff frankenstein walk at some point but Mm -hmm. uh but even throughout the film though he does you know gain a little bit more athleticism i mean he's able to outrun a mob and climb up windmills by the end of the movie you know after you know when we're introduced to him he can like barely you know walk to a chair so it's like he does still loosen up his like kind of physicality to a degree as well to like kind of show Mm -hmm. you know that that evolution he's having even though he does uh change in the the film it's a real far cry from how much he changes in the book because in the book he becomes this very eloquent you know there are chapters of uh monologues that he's giving he's very thoughtful um again i just want to keep talking about poor things but again that was like something that poor things did is like showing this person become a real person not just this Mm -hmm. you know thing that can climb up a windmill pretty fast that's pretty good huh no it's like i think you know a thoughtful person with real thoughts and feelings whereas this is still you know i'm kind of the monster what it makes me think of as you know kind of like like an attack dog it's Mm -hmm. it's you know in this environment you had this negligent owner that didn't keep his dangerous dog on a leash and you know kind of give it the love and attention that it deserves in order to kind of shape it into being a respectable human he doesn't understand or have the responsibility of this power that he wields and again like the prometheus story it gets out of control and they blame the monster for that rather than dr frankenstein I think of a toddler more than an attack dog. Mm-hmm. I think of like, this is a newborn, sure. except, you know, we don't see Karloff's monster as a newborn. We see him as a grown man because that's what he appears mm-hmm. to be. And it's, it's, it's interesting because like Victor is, uh, Henry is saying, I've created this new being out of the parts of dead beings. And I wonder because they, he didn't create this brain from scratch like he took an old brain the brain is where our memories Mm -hmm. live like you know is a one of the 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 brain is like a think of the brain as like having millions of treasure chests in them and those treasure chests can unlock like every memory that we've ever had and would that be the case for like formerly dead tissue that's now been reanimated like is this actually a new creature that or a new person that isn't newly alive or is this actually like a really what we would think of as a ghoul or a zombie like a reanimated dead person the the way i Um, think about it is with the way that he was reanimated with the lightning strike and everything uh it's uh it's like 
reformatting an uh, SD card uh, for a camera, mm-hmm. you know. So it's it's still not a new, you know, uh, it's not a new card, but however, it's kind of given this uh, kind of fresh start in a way. And okay. so it's like, and but, you know, I don't think Henry understands that because he's kind of expecting this creation to come out and be, oh, you should be at your age appropriate level of behavior. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're a failure, you know, versus kind of looking at it as, like you said, like a toddler. It's like, hey, people don't learn things unless you teach it to them. So it's like, you right. know, uh, you know, that little girl's death might not have happened if you taught, you know, the monster what water was. Uh, you know, did you think about that, Henry? I, I think I prefer the film to be about as opaque as it is about how exactly this works i think it's the perfect blend of science fiction but again that fairy tale there's lightning and sparks and you know it's it came from the sky so you know i I don't want it to get too down into the nitty-gritty i do think that there is an appealing science to it all um kind of this mad scientist you know almost magic potion so to speak but i don't want the film to get bogged down in details which i don't think that it does it's a great blend of fantasy a little potentially supernatural um but kind of based in this or rooted in science and brian that's something that you had written about you had written about how you had to believe that this could appear the science doesn't have to be something that we know about or is even potentially possible but we it had to make audience believe that at least for a moment we could buy into this in order for us to believe the story well i couldn't be magic right i think it's um telling that in this version the uh, the monster is given life through electricity a scientific manner whereas stuff before this um caligari and caligari is not frankenstein it's hypnosis in that but um like the golem for example it's a um it's a scroll that has a sort of a awakening powers of this clay figure um and then uh in metropolis it's there's definitely like alchemy involved you know there's some sort of black magic involved in um the robot maria turning into the woman um in the edison frankenstein he's put together in a cauldron i mean it's it's all very magic potion alchemy that sort of stuff here uh, and and the plays as well. Uh, the first uh, version of the script, the Garrett Ford, uh, Robert Flory script, was a magic elixir that brought him to life. Here, it's changed. It's lightning. And I think they're having, harnessing the lightning, you know, the way that scientist Benjamin Franklin did, you know, is gives it sort of a plausibility, I think. Um, especially, I mean, you don't have to know the nitty gritty of the science. Obviously it's a stretch. It's an extrapolation, but you know, there had been all those things about, you know, frog legs that have been galvanized and they move uh, on their own because of electricity and things like that. Or, you know, there's, there's sort of those kinds of things, um, in the mixture that make it feel that. So when whale is like, okay, if they can believe this, if they can believe the laboratory sequence with the lightning brought this thing to life, then we're good. If they, if the audience doesn't believe that could be real, then what's really the point? And so I like that there's a, 
extended realism to this. You well, know? it also feels a little biblical too, doesn't yeah. it? Like kind mm-hmm. of a little mm-hmm. like burning bush sort of energy that it seems like, you know, again, he, after this, he says, I'm God. So like, it's not exactly subtext here, but it no. does seem like the hands of God are kind of coming down from the sky and, you know, breathing life into this creature. And then God rejects the creature, rejects his creation, too. I mean, we could (laughs) really go down that rabbit hole there. (laughs) And that line, you know, oh, in the name of God, now I know what it feels feels like to be God. God. That was, again, removed from the original print of the film. Actually, um, I I don't want to. My understanding is it was during because when it was originally released, it was pre-code. It went through. But for the re-release in 1938, it was removed and was thought cut. and thought lost, and it, it was a jump cut for decades after yep. that. Um, the restored version restored that, but they didn't have the sound for a long mm-hmm. time. So eventually, they found the sound disc and were able to um, put the sound of him saying that line back in when I was a kid, the tape I watched over and over again, it was just a crash of thunder during that line. Right. <laughs> um, so, and there's actually, it, a, I was, I didn't notice it until this viewing today. Um, there is a, looks like an exchange between Fritz and, and Frankenstein that's lost as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know what they say, but, but it's they're just trying to pull thunder. him away from the table. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. But I, I'm not really, so I wonder if there was, if there's some lost dialogue More to that there scene. Too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to get your uh, guys' kind of interpretation of Fritz as a character, uh, notably a character oh. that is, or, or were you going to, is that planned for later? Before, before we do that, cause I want to like focus a little bit on a little bit on Victor and specifically like this side of him this idea of like wanting but i do want to talk about fritz for sure because he's fascinating and he's such a and like he becomes the prototype for a very specific type of like side character uh supporting character we're gonna see but like henry frankenstein he's a very specific type of scientist we're gonna see throughout these movies and throughout like horror films. And he kind of becomes adapted to like more of a mad scientist later on this idea of like, I know what it feels like to be God. And the idea that that is removed later on because it's deemed sacrilegious. Mm -hmm. I find that like odd because it's becoming from the point of view of the person who's eventually going to get his comeuppance in the end. Like at the end, like he, is punished in a sort of way for his creation. Like he's tossed from, I guess, you know, he does survive at the end of this movie because sequel <laughs> in the original cut, he died before in the original yeah. cut, he's dead. Mm-hmm. And then they decide like, Oh, we got to make so. And again, Frankenstein is a precursor to so much of what we see in horror when they're like, wait a minute, we can make more of these. Like even Dracula doesn't get a true, sequel for years really like you get um the daughter of dracula yeah, or dracula's daughter. daughter but just not really a sequel like bell is not in it um i mean it's kind of odd that like that line would get removed because like your quote-unquote bad guy or villain gets a comeuppance for it like we're supposed to be against him you know he's going to pay a price for feeling like he is on par with god for creating this and tempting fate i think there's a there's an interesting like kind of duology with the you know science versus faith that they kind of do 
uh, which, I mean, yeah, he is kind of the, the template for a mad scientist, but at the same time, he isn't really that in this one. Like, though he is, like, kind of deeply egotistical, he's also deeply insecure at the same time mm-hmm. uh, to where he's, like, kind of, you know, talks a lot of this talk, but also is, like, you know, kind of uh, worried about, you know, what people's impressions are going to be. And I think, uh, you know, the that's, you know, the, the science angle is kind of, uh, ties into some of the, the the queer themes that I know are uh, you know are very present throughout this film. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, almost kind of feels that you know James Whale might be able to like kind of relate to a scientist uh, mm-hmm. in you know him being an openly gay artist at the time and like you know people criticizing the way that you go about things because like I think you know uh, people can be curious about God but you can be curious about God in different ways and so like in that way you know there's you know with him having that line of being like oh, this is what it feels like to be God. And it's like, you know, people would get upset about that because it's not an experience they might be able to get to right. because they're not open-minded enough, you know, uh, versus, you know, again, being a gay person, it's like, you know, if you open your mind to certain different experiences, you might feel things that other people aren't going to get to feel and people that mm-hmm. aren't willing to open their minds up to that get scared by it. So it's like, I feel like, uh, it, you know, using the the scientific metaphor to kind of, uh, bring in some of these like kind of uh, queer themes as well I find super fascinating well I mean I also think let's be real censorship is rarely rooted in media literacy <laughs> you know it's usually reactions True. to you know who's the dominant power what do they believe in and now kind of what are they going to make everybody else believe in so certainly mm-hmm. you look at this time I'm not surprised that they're removing lines like this and I wish that they were they probably uh, thought about it as hard as we did they probably just saw a character say that they were on a level playing field mm-hmm. with God and they were like, that's got to go. Um, right. As far as like the, you know, what, what's there is, you know, does he reach his comeuppance? I think he absolutely does. I would have preferred him to, you know, actually die. Uh, Bride of Frankenstein would have certainly looked a lot different, but I, I think mm-hmm. that I... I think this movie deserves kind of a, a warning that is a real or an ending that is a real warning, this cautionary tale, right? Yeah. And this tragic ending. I don't think that it needs to be, um, you know, have this epilogue of showing Victor to be alive. I say kill him, man, but yeah. I get it. I get it. It's not the, you know, it's not the happiest ending yeah. in the world. And there's another moment later on, like when before – Victor before Henry has the I keep saying Victor because in the novel right. it's Victor in the, in the movie like Victor is this milk toast handsome dude with a mustache that wants to horn in on Henry's lady like he's just there to be good looking and be like I kind of like you but you're betrothed to somebody else you know best exchange and then he just kind of like, disappears from the movie <laughs> yeah yeah it just kind of goes like you know, oh, I wish you wouldn't go. I, 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 I would go to the ends of earth for you. I wish you wouldn't. I'm fond of you. I wish you were. And then she's like, right, I got to go. <laughs> it's just very creepy. Um, there's an exchange later on between Henry and Waltman. When Henry thinks that he has succeeded, he doesn't quite get the full scope of how low the monster is intellectually yet. And he's kind of like feeling his oats. Like he's at the table. He's puffing on a cigar. He feels he succeeded. And he has this like really wonderful speech. And Brian, I'm hoping like, can you read the quote here Uh, from the notes? Because you have a notes of how this was from Wales contribution. Yeah. Like how he contributed this to this. Yeah, this was um, his one uh, 
well, I mean, obviously contribute a lot more to the final product, but you know, this is officially put into the script by James Whale. And this is where Henry says to Waldman, he says, uh, dangerous, poor old Waldman. Have you ever wanted to do anything that was dangerous? Where should we be if no one tried to find out what lies beyond? Have you never wanted to look beyond the clouds and the stars or to know what causes the trees to bud and what changes the darkness into light? But if you talk like that, people call you crazy. Well, if I could discover just one of these things, what eternity is, for example, I wouldn't care if they did think I was crazy. And I love that speech and I love Colin Clyde's delivery yeah. because there's a hint of madness and defiance mm-hmm in that speech when he delivers it, he's delivers it not with like triumph. He doesn't sound triumphant. He sounds like he is goading Waldman on at that. I dare you to call me crazy in this moment. And there is something like beautiful about this idea. Like if we're not pushing boundaries, if we're not pushing the limits of what we can do, we're going to remain stagnant as a species we're going to remain stagnant at at, we're going to remain stagnant as humans why are we not why are we so afraid to push these boundaries and yet this whole story exists to show the inherent danger of what can happen if we push too far too fast like look what our attempts can lead to I was going to say, I mean, I, I love this monologue. I think it's gorgeous. Um, it's uh, kind of some of the best representations of, I think, not only, I don't think he's trying to goad him. I think this is like, for me, honestly, this is like one of the true moments where we get to see like Henry at his true core in his yeah. kind of genuine curiosity about life and about science and the way he kind of delivers mm-hmm. that um it uh, gives me shades of uh, the, the park bench scene in Men in Black, which is one of my all-time mm-hmm. favorite monologues. And, um, you know, in kind of like you said, like uh, in, you know, feeling he's trying to like show, you know, Walden, like, you know, why science inspires him in a way, uh, you know, and with that, you know, kind of with that quote again, too, uh, again, like I almost can't help but feel like, you know, that whale, you know, putting this in here himself is, you know, also still kind of relating that to his you know life of living as a openly gay artist in the 30s, which mm-hmm. was dangerous for him. You know, so it's like I think that this film not only is uh, talking about the dangers of, you know, you know, pushing scientific exploration too far, but it's also the dangers of when you feel that you can't, you know, where you're going to end up that way. Because if he felt a little bit more encouraged by, you know, what he thought people would think about his scientific experiments, maybe he would have taken his time a little bit more and he would have put more thought into it. But because he had these insecurities about the way that people were going to perceive him as crazy. That's it. He acts a little bit more radical with the experiments. I will say, I don't agree with the assessment that this movie is about um, the danger of advancing technology or the danger of um, exploration. Cause to me, I think this movie is about the danger of unchecked, you know, um, ambition mm-hmm. and the dangers mm-hmm. of, okay, you are going to pursue knowledge and you are going to pursue wisdom and scientific exploration and all of those things but 
when you discover those things, there's a responsibility to that. It's it's kind of that That's story of, of, of Prometheus, yeah. you know. And, and and to say that like this monologue is the POV of the movie, I think is also uh, not quite how I see the film because I don't see Henry as um, this protagonist that I'm supposed to trust. He again the same character that that says uh, I know what it's like to feel uh, to to be God. I don't think that we're necessarily supposed to take his word you know and mm-hmm. as as gospel here again this is somebody who is supposed to receive their comeuppets uh, at the end of the film and i don't really sure. feel like he's getting it at this point you know he's not mm-hmm. really understanding or taking accountability for what he did he made this thing and he didn't have the attention to to detail and to care to you know uh, have that responsibility of again being a father and discovery and scientific yeah. discovery and, and you know there's there's multiple kind of things that i i, I feel are at play here or just multiple interpretations of the film right devon's already mentioned the the queer angle of this film i just think when you have a story about an outcast and you have a story about somebody that society turns against it's really easy to put yourself at at that point of view and relate to this character i think that that's why monsters are so beloved right is because they are kind of a mirror to us and it's really easy to have that audience surrogate as somebody who feels on the outside of society Mm-hmm. Brian, what say you? Um, <laughs> I don't know that I have much more to add. I think everyone has spoken yes, spoken very well about all of this. Uh, I think um, my thought is the again the responsibility for um, for his creation is the is the key. I think that's also the key to Shelley's novel. And it's funny because the opening. Um, monologue he says you know he did this without reckoning upon god which is not really the point and it sort of lays out the quote-unquote theme of the movie that isn't really the theme of the movie Mm -hmm. Um, because i very much think that uh shelley's novel as well is not so much about hey you shouldn't you know advance science that's not what she's saying Instead, she's saying, but there needs to be such a thing as scientific ethics and responsibility. Yeah, well, yeah, Shelley's novel isn't really interested. It's not a science fiction novel. It's really a a story about how society shapes people. It's really like this Mm -hmm. almost societal science fiction novel to where it's way more focused on magic and, you know... um, uh, not as much of the lightning and sparks of the, the science of, of, sure. of this. It's more fast and loose with the rules. And I think that it's more focused on how this angry mob that develops shapes this monster uh, in, a, in a less literal way. Sure. Mm-hmm. Brian, what about the idea as well of Henry trying to forge his own path because one character we haven't talked about and he's a bit of like a comic relief in this movie but baron von frankenstein yeah who at times feels like he's in a different movie he does but it feels like his presence also informs a lot of henry's decision making like henry is trying to get out from under his father's shadow whether he's conscious or unconscious of like these choices he's making and there was a line in the same scene where he delivers that monologue where he's talking to Waldman, he says something about you know his father you know he sort of scoffs at his father not really caring about anything um Mm -hmm. and i had never really thought about that before 
today. And um, the Baron <coughs> is also sort of a condescending character. <laughs> yeah. You know, these sequences like this champagne, champagne is wasted yeah, the, on this them. wine is wasted on him, give the servant champagne. And, you know, he sort of uh, goes to the balcony and talks to the peasantry from on high and says, hey, aren't we generous? We're letting you be a part of our happy day and all this other stuff. Um, but I think that you see Henry wanting to remove himself from um, from that life in a lot of ways. Um, I do think he does in the film love Elizabeth, and that's sort of the one connection to I I know I know, but um, I think that's the one connection to that could bring him back to the world. Even though he tells her to go away at first, that's because he's so drawn to his obsession which is like a drug to him and that i think is explored more in in bride where it's almost like you know he's a he's an addict and um he's being coerced to take another hit um in the second movie you know whereas uh here um it's he doesn't seem to have much connection to the world outside of his um outside of his work. Um, so he seems to be much more, uh, Waldman is sort of the go-between that he can relate to, but that's about it. Waldman, it seems like is who he aspires mm-hmm. to be in some ways. Like he's a man of learning. He's a self-made man. Whereas like Baron von Frankenstein was born into his class and he inherited all his wealth. And there's that scene before the wedding, like 30 years ago, I put this crown of like orange blossoms on your mother's head. And I hope 30 years from now, your son will put this on your head. And there's that line, like a son to the house of Frankenstein. And Henry cringes at that. Cause on one hand, he actually has delivered a son to the house of Frankenstein. But on another hand, he's kind of like, cringing ex- against those expectations of having to like continue pass down line. from generating yeah. yeah continue this line that really like what do they contribute yeah and i think that goes again to wales sort of of issues uh you know experiences of class you know being born mm-hmm. poor but sort of becoming wealthy no. uh, of his no. own accord mm-hmm. and and sort of finding right. this this separation between himself yeah. and I think there's sort of an inner right. turmoil between where he came from and who he had right. become. And you only have one moment in the movie where a character lets down their guard and lets kind of their feelings about the Baron be known. Like when the Burgermeister leaves after their conversation with the bear where the baron is like completely condescending and rude to the burgermeister who's simply trying to say like look we've prepared the village let us know what we should be doing like is there going to be a wedding or not and the baron is completely condescending to the him when he leaves like for a moment the burgermeister turns around and when he's like says goodbye to him you see the look on his face and it's one of spite He's just like, I can't believe I have to deal with this guy and like be nice to him. And it's the mask quickly goes back up, but I find it like a really telling look. And I love that little 
that little moment mm-hmm. and that little piece of facial acting. I love well, that. We were talking a bit about how he feels um, a tad out of touch uh, or um, out of place in the film. Uh, he like feels a little awkward, maybe like tonally. I, I really like that. I love that James Whale and a lot of his films, I think, are uh, – we, we talked a lot about it on, on our podcast, Shameless Plug Time. But when we were discussing uh, uh, like a queer cinema, we were talking about its ties to camp and to going mm-hmm. to more um, exaggerated – go into more dramatic and if you look every corner of this movie is camp the performances of this mad scientist you know screaming to the heavens and cackling and lightning coming down it's it's dramatic it's it's far more extravagant than the novel it's far more extravagant than even earlier german expressionist films it's kind of this mm-hmm. more american version of it um but bringing it to uh modern audiences in a, a really different way i think it's a true reinterpretation of the text and i don't think that this mm-hmm. film gets as much credit as it should for its humor this is a really funny movie there's a lot of great jokes in it and i think baron frankenstein is um kind of the butt of the joke a lot of the time of this very well-to-do kind of guy that i think again especially considering when this movie came out people probably didn't really relate to you know that he is kind of oh, this sure. more aloof cartoon so to speak yeah, I mean, shout out to shout out to Henry for uh, breaking the mold of being a nepo baby. He, you know, getting out of his goofy dad shadow. Um, uh, but and well, without without dad's money though, is he going to be able to have that castle up on the hill and all that equipment? You know, Rob's not, and that's the that's the problem with the nepos these days. They're not admitting well, it's their. An, it's an old abandoned watchtower, though. Yeah, uh, um, but uh, but and and. To piggyback off of Garrett's uh, kind of camp observations, uh, yeah, and to tie into his relationship with uh, Elizabeth, is that kind of where you know you get a lot of this like kind of melodrama between them, and that's fascinating because like I feel like he does care for her, but she was kind of a placeholder until his experiments started coming to fruition. And it's like, okay, now that we're engaged, oh, I should probably tell you about these crazy experiments I'm doing because I'm actually making progress, but you're going to think I'm crazy. Uh, it's it was uh, kind of wild to do uh, right before or right after an engagement. Um, mm-hmm. So it's like, I do feel like he does care, but it also comes down to this like kind of interpretation that again like he's you know scared of what uh the the fellow doctors are going to think about his uh experiments what's what the town's going to think it's all about ego this whole movie is about ego (laughs) and and he cares about what elizabeth thinks too to a degree so it's like kind of also like that you know angle of a marriage where it's like you want to kind of hide some of your you know dark uh things about yourself so like uh you know that it creates a lot of great melodrama between them i love the uh moment where she's like uh, tell me i'm enough for you tell me you love me enough and he just goes sure <laughs> and it's uh, one of the greatest comedic beats in the movie there's also a really funny uh kind of like ironic cut in the film where they like cheers to uh dr frankenstein's son and then they cut to the monster like it's this really mm-hmm. great joke mm-hmm. of like yeah cheers to th- his kid and look, what, he look what he's doing <laughs> yep I wanted. Let's talk a little more about uh, Henry and Elizabeth. We've kind of tiptoed around some of the queer undertones, and you know, Bride of Frankenstein is considered one of the touchstones of queer horror cinema for good reason. We'll talk about that a lot more in depth next week. I will say there's a specific moment in that movie when gay cinema and camp cinema is born, and we'll point that out next week 
but there are a lot of queer undertones in this movie specifically with Henry seeming to do anything and everything in his power to get away from Elizabeth whenever he can. He on his wedding day literally locks her in a room <laughs> and gets as far away pieces out like when he hears that the monster is in the house he like the monster is in the house let me lock you in this room where you can't get out and I will go away almost like he's like kind of hoping the monster is going to break into the room and maybe do away and I think book, he's doing when... it for her protection but <laughs> sure sure Brian misguided misguided um, protection but her protection but it in any given, like Henry is surrounding himself with like Fritz and Waldman in mm-hmm. yeah. the company yeah, oh, of oh, men yeah. Oh, yeah. throughout this movie. It's where he feels his most comfortable. Like he's comfortable around Fritz. Like Fritz is a friend to him. Like when Fritz dies, he's like my poor dear Fritz. Like he is saddened at the loss of his, his henchmen. I mean, there's a true pathos yeah. there. When Elizabeth shows up at his door, his reaction is, oh, go away. <laughs> like, that's literally what he says. He does not want to let her in. It's like she it's like this... she walked in on him naked or something. He's like, oh, no, you can't yeah. see me like this. <laughs> yeah. It is lowest moment. And this idea that, like, Henry and Fritz together, like, these two men have created a life without needing a woman to create a life. Like they've kind of like eliminated the need for woman in order to give birth mm-hmm. to a son of their own. And I don't think that it gets more queer or queer friendly than that idea that like we can just live our lives in peace. We can have a family. We can build the queer family we want I mean, without the expectation that we're going to need to get married. I mean, it's also like kind of almost progressive in a way if he's like, Mm because if you do want to believe that he does care for Elizabeth, because I think to a degree does, it's like kind of him being like, Hey, I love you as a person. And yeah, we should totally get married because you know, society stuff. But like, Mm -hmm. Hey, if I show you my, my kinky queer stuff, are you going to judge me? Like, can Mm -hmm. you still let me kind of have this and, um, you know, talk about kind of uh, some uh, camp, uh, camp queer cinema iconography uh, I mean the scene where he does bring the monster to life I mean we see his O face he practically orgasms from <laughs> this rush that he has from bringing it to life and you kind of see everybody's look in the way that they look at him when he's kind of having this feeling of elation he puts on and a show he, put, he sets out chairs like he's making a demonstration <laughs> of it like he's I think there's just a little production behind it so he's like he's like are you gonna let my freak flag fly or not you know so it's like I kind of see that, it like almost in uh, him kind of wanting to have both lives in an I interesting did- way I had forgotten that he didn't create this monster in secret. I had forgotten that he was like on the day mm-hmm. of the, it coming to life. He's like, oh, yeah, let me get out the good silverware. And <laughs> yeah. And he's like, let's do this. Well, um, to be but, clear, oh, they come to they show him. up uninvited. They come up. They come un- uninvited. You know? But he doesn't postpone it. He's like, all right, well, we're going to do this. Well, well you're here already. At the end of the movie. He has that moment with with Victor and he's like, look, I am entrusting you to take care of Elizabeth. He's essentially saying I'm releasing my hold on her like I am giving her over to you. Take care of her. Love her like I was supposed to love her. You know, he's essentially giving his blessing 
to Victor, who everybody knows is deeply in love with Elizabeth and is probably a better match for her. Um, take care of her. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what he's, he's giving his blessing to that union. So I think there's like a lot of like queerness in this movie uh, that is like very, very, oh, it's very obvious. I think you see a lot more of it in Bride of Frankenstein, but to your point, Devon, like James Whale is like, I'm not sure if he was like 100% in the open for 1931. He was. He was. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I thought it was like an open secret. Like he was as open as you could be for the 1930s. Well, like it wasn't. The, the early 1930s in Hollywood, se. it actually wasn't that big of a deal. It oh, okay. wasn't until the Fair Hayes point. Code sort of mm -hmm. had to transform all this stuff that okay. things became much more of a deal. Uh, of a, I mean, obviously, it was a big deal. Mm -hmm. I mean, don't get me wrong. But um, Whale, uh, I'm, I'm getting some of the things I'm saying from this uh, biography um, on James Whale. Um, he, the queerness becomes much more of an issue with Bride <laughs> because... Mm -hmm. Um, oh, because things were becoming um, more, yeah. you know, challenged for him, yeah. um, though. By yeah. 36, you could not make horror movies. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah, they were a band in Britain, essentially. Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, there was sort of a dead period uh, in, in from 36 to about 39, which, mm -hmm. like I said, we'll probably cover more with Son of Frankenstein. Oh, yeah. It takes like a triple bill. We'll talk more about it, yeah. but it takes like mm -hmm. a theater in L.A. Mm -hmm. doing a triple bill of horror and like lines around the block for days before studios are saying like, screw the code. We're just going to start doing these movies That's right. Again. Yeah. Yeah. Garrett, you wanted to talk about Fritz. What do you have to say about our dear hunchback friend and played by the wonderful Dwight? Yeah, I just wanted to kind of talk to you guys about it. And it seems like you guys are fans of the book. Uh, you probably are familiar that Fritz not in the book. Uh, he was added nope. uh, because of uh, the play uh, initially and was seemingly more of a plot device, but has since kind of transcended just being that. Like, he is an iconic character uh, in multiple different versions. Big fan of uh, young Frankenstein. But in this film, does that character work? Uh, d does the character work in a way that uh, kind of lives up to the iconography? Or do you feel that that kind of comes later down the line? Uh, I mean, I said he was an asshole, which is true. Uh, he he does, uh, you know, uh, take his frustrations out on the monster so much, and and I and again for me that comes back to you know themes of accountability. Like, yeah, I'm sure Fritz's life isn't the best, and you know, I'm sure he's been put upon in certain degrees, but that doesn't give you you know the right to you know act in the way that he does once he gets the opportunity to so like is he much better than anyone that might have been doing that to him even though it seems like him and henry get along fairly well um you know so it's like it is interesting the way uh you know fritz just like kind of fits into uh the film as far as like the the power dynamics go um, and with also, you know, linking into some of the queer undertones as well, like, oh, you know, the only person he ever works with is Fritz. We don't hear about anybody else but Fritz, uh, you know, so it's like, uh, yeah, he's an interesting character, but uh, uh, still an asshole. <laughs> Devon, you don't know what it's like to live life as a short man. That's all I'm saying. Hey, you know, hey, this is poor guy. It's, it's just... You know, I had to go and get stuff yesterday at the store. It was on a very high shelf. 
it was falling on my head, trying to jump up and get it. It was embarrassing. <laughs> oh, and I bet so you thought that I bet you thought that Arthur was justified in Joker too, don't you? Uh, is not justified. I've, it's not okay. I don't. I've not seen. I've not watched it. <laughs> oh wow! Good for you. Good no, for you. Not, <laughs> not on my list, Brian. I mean, I know you're a huge fan of Dwight Fry. Oh, absolutely. And I believe you love this performance. What do you feel? Make of Fry's performance here and what he Well, has? Fry was great in everything. I mean, he's the best part of Dracula, in my opinion. Um, I I like him even more than Lugosi, and I love Lugosi in that movie. But um, I, I think he's just, uh, what he brings to this, I, I think the character itself is interesting because um, it sort of underscores the class idea as well because... Uh, he's sort of the bottom rung of society, right? Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's uh, probably a convict. He's uh, he's disabled. He's um, got real issues, and he manages to, you know. So when he when the monster is created, oh, there's someone that's a rung below me. This is new, uh, so I think he takes advantage of that, and I think. Um, these cast systems are sort of on dis- full display throughout this movie. And we've already discussed that a little bit. Um, but the iconography of this character, I mean, when we think of Igor, we think of Fritz, you know, mm-hmm. um, Igor is when he comes along in son of Frankenstein, it's pretty different from this character. So, uh, but Hey, when we think of, you know, young Frankenstein with Igor. If we think of um, the movie that the cartoon movie that came out several years later, um, it's Fritz. That is the template for that. And Dwight Fry's performance here is um, he's just always engaging to watch. He's just, he could, he seems to be having a good time in every movie he makes. Fry is so good as Renfield. Yeah that they create this role for him in Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. And he's so good as Fritz that they bring him back for Bride of Frankenstein as a different but similar character. Yeah. Is And he's brilliant as that. And then Lugosi as Igor, it's a different take on like the hunchback assistant, but it's equally like, I oh, think it's, it's great. my favorite Lugosi oh, character. Like he's incredible like they said i killed a man so they say you know i was robbing graves so they say it's lugosi's having lugosi steals the show oh yeah absolutely i would agree frankenstein Mm -hmm. which i'm looking forward to i i enjoy lugosi more in son of frankenstein than i do in dracula i think he's brilliant he's born to play igor more so than even Dracula. So I am a big fan. And that I don't think that role exists without Fry playing Fritz oh, in no, Frankenstein. Yeah. So I really mm-hmm. love it. And it does give impetus for Karloff's monster, mm-hmm. the acting monstrous. And I do, let's shift focus just a little bit to talk about the one scene that Karloff and Whale disagreed about the scene that was cut from the film for years until it was restored in that VHS that Brian talked about, and it's on the DVD and Blu-ray and 4K now, is the scene where Karloff encounters Maria, the young girl, and it's the first person to show him any sort of kindness, any sort of empathy, any sort of caring. And 
she he rewards her by throwing her in the lake, not out of any sort of animosity or anger or evilness, but because out of a sense of like childhood logic, he logics, oh, I've enjoyed this tossing these beautiful flowers in the lake. The lake, the flowers float. They're beautiful. This girl is beautiful. She'll float too. And he accidentally drowns her. This was the one scene that the two disagreed on. Karloff did not want to show it. He felt it was too monstrous. Whale insisted that it goes in. Um, and it led to, probably led directly to the creation of the Screen Actors Guild because Whale treated Karloff horribly after this. Mm-hmm. Like after this scene, after the, the arguments they had on set or the disagreements they had on set about it, the next thing they have to shoot essentially is Karloff carrying Colin Clive like up the hill to the uh, windmill and then up the steps. And Whale won't let Karloff use a dummy. He's like, nope, you got to carry that dead weight over and over and over. And it causes Karloff a permanent back injury. Like he had to, he permanently hurts himself and it led to Karloff becoming a founding member of the Screen Actors Guild and like lobbying for better working conditions. Absolutely. Do you, Brian, I think you and I like disagree. You're like, you okay. thought the scene could get cut. Well, he, I think it's he, no, 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 no. I think, I think, I think, um, let's, let's talk through what's going on here though. This yeah. is what whale said. Whale wanted Karloff to pick the girl up over his head and okay. throw her into the lake. Oh God. I'd love that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But okay. Right. Karloff said, wouldn't it be more artistic if we just showed me reaching for her mm-hmm. and then you cut and then the next time you see her, she's being carried by her father. Now, that's essentially mm-hmm. what it ended up being for a long time because yeah. okay. the scene exists in, in, the, in the unrestored version. Um, it's just up to the point where he reaches for her is where it cuts. Mm-hmm. And you can see that in the restored version, if you watch carefully, the images don't quite match. So what was cut right. out doesn't quite match. So I mean, they came to this compromise that he would pick her up and toss her. Yeah. And that's what's in the film. Um, now, Marilyn Harris, this little girl is really, it's, this is, I love this story. If you don't mind me sharing this, I please do. It's a great story. I, I just love that Marilyn Harris, um, the little girl that plays Maria, uh, she um, had this sort of domineering stage mother. Um, but on this day that they were going to shoot, there was an hour drive out to Sherwood Lake. Um, and so they were all getting in cars, Karloff in full makeup. Um, and the she comes up to Karloff and says, I want to ride with you. And is that okay? And he says, well, of course, darling, you know, in, in that uh, lovely lispy voice of his. And um, so he has this instant connection. The monster has sort of this instant connection with children that has sort of continued on. You know, I mentioned my own experience with that connection, but um, one of the stories that's kind of funny is there's something didn't quite work in the first time he tossed her in the lake. She didn't go out far enough. He didn't throw her far enough. He didn't throw her far enough. So um, 
James Whale. Can I just state for the record before you yeah, go ahead. continue? The part of the pendulum, I mean, we haven't put it to a vote. I'm going to vote for the crew. We are very pro throwing children in lakes, okay? That's Oh, very pro fuck them kids. Very pro fuck them kids. If we are for one thing, we are for throwing small children in lakes. We are unified on this. Very far. Oh, sorry. All all good. Um, So she had to do it again. And in order to uh, coerce her uh, or, or get her to do that again, Whale asked her, you know, anything you want i will give it to you to if you do this one more time and she said because she had, was on a strict diet because of this domineering stage mother of hers she wanted one dozen hard-boiled eggs <laughs> to which um he agreed and um she did it again and then um later she received her reward which was two dozen hard-boiled eggs from James Whale. Um, and I, I love that story. And I love also, but before that even, just that idea that she just connected instantly with Karloff. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. Karloff always talked about how um, the children that he um, that he connected with, most of his fan mail came from children. And one of the things that he said, and I love this story, um, a fan letter that he got, he sort of paraphrased it, and he said, she said something like this, I always like to see you as the Frankenstein monster, though at home they sometimes tell me it will make me sleep badly at nights. It doesn't. (laughs) Because the parents were always freaked out, right? It doesn't. If I lie awake thinking about you, I think of what a poor, frightened thing you are, and with all those people chasing you. Besides, you didn't mean to be bad, did you? They made you be. So it seems like these children <laughs> understood the thematics of this movie and this character more than the adults. Because uh, uh, Karloff on set was required to wear a veil over his head. So he wouldn't scare the secretaries, according mm-hmm. to Carl Lemley. And um, he couldn't eat in the studio commissary because he was making people uncomfortable. Um, so it's sort of like the themes of the movie playing out in real life during the shooting of the film. And I think right. that is just uh, a, a remarkable right. kind of story and element to the yeah. backstory of this movie. Yeah. And it's Karloff doing this in, I think you noted here, he's shooting this in the middle of the summer uh-huh. in heavy makeup, in costume. Over 100 degrees. And Karloff's a trooper. Like, Karloff never complains. Right. I mean, yeah, uh, I thought you were going to say 12 cookies. I thought you were going to say 12 candy bars, but 12 hard-boiled eggs uh, is hilarious from that story. But, I mean, yeah, this the scene is so integral to, you know, seeing the, like you said, like you see this interaction that's, you know, you know the, the one pure interaction in the whole movie. And if you did the cutaway without watching the, the toss, one, the toss makes me laugh every time because it does look pretty funny. Uh, two... Um, but if you do, if you have the the cut in between, you don't have the you know to show uh, it's nothing but five seconds after he tosses her in the water that he's already concerned and already realizes mm-hmm. like what he did wrong and, and mm-hmm. starts panicking. Well, that's right. So that's so right. if you don't so if you put a cut in there, you don't really get that you know very smooth flow to like see the immediacy of like how quickly mm-hmm. he like yeah. learned that he fucked up. Well, in a way, it actually makes yeah. it worse because it yeah. makes the scene worse when you have the cut because he just reaches for her. And the next time you see Maria, she's dead. 
you know, and it's and, it's, and it makes that moment hit harder too because yeah, you know the yeah. last thing we see is her getting tossed in the water, and then later on we see her getting carried. It's it's like oh man, because then you have to start thinking about like oh my god, the dad had to fish her out of the lake, right? Like that kind of hole, and that's like a right. whole horrific mm-hmm. scene unto itself. And then you see you know the next time we see her is her corpse being carried. Uh, so it just makes so, it hit even harder. Yeah, I mean, so this is. I, I was just gonna Sorry, say I, I can't first. imagine cutting earlier like your takeaway everything from that scene for one as we established pro throwing children in <laughs> in lakes. I, if I want anything, to see that. I yes. wish there were more kids. Yes, more, more kids. Just yeah. <laughs> wish it was like a kids at recess and he just threw them in. Like, what if I throw them all in and they they'll save each other? And they. I, I do think that Karloff was right to object to him throwing. <laughs> you know, lifting her up over his head, though. I think that would be crazy <laughs> because because yeah, uh, that's not the because the idea is always oh, just tossing in a, another flower. You yeah. know, whereas that is like it's it's malicious. There's a there's an aggressiveness yes. to it. And I think that would yeah. undermine the character a little bit. I don't, I don't know. Agreed. I think she could have went through it a little bit more. You know, struggled just a, <laughs> a little bit more, throw her a little bit harder. Uh, no, I'm kidding. But yeah, mm-hmm. I, I think cutting earlier completely changes um, the characterization of the monster. Devon's exactly right. That uh, reaction shot that you get is not only totally integral to his character, but also some of Boris Karloff's best acting in the movie. So, like, why would you want to cut that? I know oh, it's that's right. yeah. a brutality sort of thing, but you sacrifice so much. You also get, after this, I think one of Wales' best shots in the film, like one of the best sequences, and you get a real example of how far cinema has come from Dracula to Frankenstein when you have, I believe it's Hans, carrying his daughter through the square you have like the ringing of the bells and you have like Hans, like the walk that he gives that stagger, like that almost like that glassy eyed look and the way he's almost lurching like the monster. Like it's a very kind of stiff legged walk. He's almost off balance. And the fact that like Maria looks looks dead yeah. for young Marilyn Harris like does an incredible job of acting dead mm-hmm. in that sequence and they do an incredible job of just little details I'm haunted like by the songs. way her her yeah. leg bounces in that scene yes. there's something about that is just mm-hmm. so disturbing the the other detail that gets me is that as he's walking through the square and passes by the revelers everybody is celebrating the wedding mm-hmm until he walks by and then they stop and there's like one person who reacts with like this real visceral shock and you see it happen almost like dominoes falling like everyone's celebrating he walks by and they instantly react in shock and terror and begin following there's like a kid that shouts maria yeah i mean it's like Mm -hmm. my friend is that's my friend you know it's like the sound of this little kid's voice it's it's a beautiful sequence yeah. it just shows how how much command whale had in terms of like visual storytelling this like brief like minute long sequence tells such a tale and it does lead directly to what Brian and Garrett would you have both talked about with class warfare because like the villagers aren't angered at Henry and the Frankensteins for creating this creature 
they immediately want to go after the creature with, I believe, what might be the first sequence of like villagers with pitchforks and torches in a horror movie. But they immediately turn all of their anger towards the creature, not towards the man that created him and then abandoned him. Yeah, the the scene is has like impeccable choreography because I mean there's a shit ton of extras in that scene. So the mm-hmm. way for Whale to be able to like kind of control the flow of that entire mm-hmm. scene to kind of show like you know uh, in kind of a you know almost real time way of like you said like you know the realization then you know the shifting of the energy that you know they already had from you know excitement now is you know shifted into uh into um into anger you know halloween kills could have taken some notes um but mm-hmm. uh, i think it is a a really nice uh you know interesting transitional scene again like you know whales with a, a lot of these kind of like longer uh you know held shots and we get some like kind of tracking like you know the way we see them go from the parade to anger then you you know kind of cut and then they all of a sudden have the torches and stuff uh, after afterwards so it's like the way that it uh you know flows in this uh back half of the movement is just like gorgeous it's also another it's funny you mention halloween kills because i think if you listen really closely one of the villagers yells <laughs> evil dies tonight i'm pretty sure it's a deep cut it's a deep cut from uh, david gordon green deep, deep cut. <laughs> um i i think it's also kind of another example as to the the camp sort of argument with this film right this dramatic shift in tones that kind of happens in this film like i said uh, uh james whale uh, has a, a pretty sick you know twisted sense of humor and so i do feel like he's having a bit of fun with the irony of this celebration of a wedding you know people celebrating the start of something new being interrupted by the ending of something so young you know i i I think that it's Mm -hmm. a little not quite like black humor but there is a real um you know disparity between the two no, one of the one of the funniest lines of this movie is like whenever they all are like kind of rising up and then the uh, Burgermeister like comes out of the church, you know, from the wedding being interrupted and he's like, oh, she's dead. And then he goes, but why'd you bring her here? And it's one of the funniest line readings of the entire movie. I think the real funniest thing that happens when the monster confronts Elizabeth Urgh. and she screams, <laughs> yeah, he just kind of like, that's just kind of It's a laugh line. every time I've seen yeah. it with another people. I, okay. So I saw this on, we, you mentioned earlier about um, how kids or young people, different people of different ages mm-hmm. react to this movie. I took my son to this uh, when he was, I mean, this was a couple years ago. He would have been 11 and, um, mm-hmm. He was into this. He was really into this. Yeah. The three James Whale ones um, that we saw, this Invisible Man and Bride, he was into all of them. I was, they really held up for him. Mm-hmm. But anyway, but that part, <laughs> the just sort of that growl yeah. that he gives always gets a laugh. It never fails. It's chuckalicious. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I uh, Absolutely chuckalicious. Yeah, like I had mentioned, I was a huge fan of this when I was a kid, so totally, you know. Uh, personal experience here yeah i absolutely think that this has again that that timeless quality to it um i'm yeah. a i'm a sucker for the scene where he uh, starts you know puffing smoke smoking the cigar <laughs> that's like a profile mm-hmm. picture waiting to happen it's just a really fun well, that's moment a, to see. it's a very human moment too and that's bride, a bride, yeah. oh my mistake my mistake it, <laughs> a, a, a great little karloff aside in that scene with may clark she was like boris i think i'm going to be terrified when you're in this oh, makeup I love this he's too, like well yeah. what i'm going to do 
I'm going to wiggle my pinky finger. So when you when we're acting, just look at my pinky finger and it'll be wiggling and you'll know it's me. And I keep looking for it, like when I'm watching this, to see if he's wiggling his finger and I can't quite catch it. So it must be it's, it's, like his right doing, hand. It's his upstage like, hand. He's doing a pretty good job of concealing yeah. it. Yeah. So it's it's one of those things he does to keep because Karloff was just like a very gentle, humane, wonderful human being like there's just everybody loved boris karloff like it's one of those things or except for lon cheney jr apparently but everybody (laughs) seemed a little bit i don't think lon cheney jr liked yeah i think you're probably right about so uh so i think he liked jack and daniel Uh and i think that might be the only two people he may have really liked um talk about the end super quick here because i think it's again something i just noticed for the first time last night this overhead shot of the villagers running out like this gorgeous almost crane shot of like dozens of villagers running out and rushing just beautiful command again of whale and you have this fight between victor and henry and poor boris having to carry colin clive like dead waiting for him and again causing boris like a lifelong back injury um and it's something that like Jack Pierce would talk about on an episode of This Is Your Life, like Pierce saying, like, you won't talk about it, but I will. Like, they never should have made you carry him. And Boris being like, shut up, Jack. Like, <laughs> yeah. please, let's not, let's not air our dirty laundry here, good mm-hmm. sir. Um, what's some, some of the shots in this, in this, where, in this um, windmill sequence are beautiful. Like, when they're, peering at each other through like the window is just gorgeous but again he doesn't throw henry out of the windmill out of any set of anger he does it almost like this is what you want like if i give you him will you leave me alone all the monster wants to do is to be left alone i'll throw him at you just go away he's trying like when trying to fend them off he's terrified when they set the windmill ablaze he's screaming the screaming really you know? got to me on this viewing yeah. i hadn't really connected with that but man it's he's it's afraid. so afraid and you can feel the fear yeah mm-hmm. this is not something you would ever see in a halloween movie in a friday the 13th movie in a Kind of in a Nightmare on Elm Street movie, like Freddy is afraid of, you do get those sequences where Freddy is afraid sometimes, Mm -hmm. but you're never sympathetic towards Freddy Krueger. Here, I just don't think you can watch this and not feel sympathetic for Karloff uh, in the monster. But then you get that really odd tacked on ending (laughs) where like Henry's in bed and he's surrounded by like 10 women. Well, they knew they had a hit on their hands after the Santa Barbara preview. And so they said, okay, we're going to add an ending where he is confirmed to be alive. Well, it's funny in bride. They just sort of ignore it. Right. They like, (laughs) they like try to imply that like him, him uh, catching the windmill on the way down broke his fall enough. And it's like, I don't know. That still looks like he probably would have bit the dust from it, you know, but, (laughs) uh, but yeah, some, some really, uh, iconic shots of like uh you know we have like the silhouetted crowd lit by their their torches uh you know coming at these dutch angles is uh, really it's just like really striking mm-hmm. uh, within itself and the scene also uh uh like you said uh, not only the screams but like 
the the loudness and intensity of the flames to like kind of really put you like how how scared the monster is in this moment and like kind of like the way that he's experienced it because they do it with that scene they also do it with um uh, uh, the scene where they're bringing him to life with the thunder. It's like very uh, overwhelming at certain points. So I, I like uh, the, the things that they do with the sound design in this scene mm-hmm. uh, is uh, just uh, it's very it's very intense. And yeah, like you, you really this is where Boris like really gets to shine and like, you know, because he's kind of panicking around. So, you, you know, kind of have the body language, his wailing. And uh, and it's uh, it's heartbreaking. I, I think what it's the difference between having an actor and a stuntman. You're getting a real performance. You're getting a real actor. You're getting something that stands almost a century later. It's not been duplicated. It's not just a guy in makeup lurching around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah I, I will say I think that the uh, the this what makes the ending so striking for me, apart from everything that you guys are saying, is that it's a real display of nature. Right. It's showing the power of nature, this big windmill being pushed by the wind. You have the flame of the all of the, you know, the the angry mob uh, kind of with this uh, contrasting of this freak of nature, you know, being terrorized by people. I also love that it kind of takes place with this big giant gear in the center of the room, just kind of like Mm -hmm. adding movement and loudness and and, and craziness to everything. I, I don't think that the scene would be quite as tense without it so i think that's a a nice addition Mm -hmm. yeah it gives a nice way to separate the two characters and have that like striking Mm -hmm. visual of them peering at one another like separated by that huge gear and that like that shadow that it creates between them like again it's whale creating these like really striking beautiful visuals that really stick mm-hmm. with you and there, there's also a moment too that uh i know we kind of talked about like how it would have felt differently if henry actually did die at the end versus getting to survive because there's a moment too when the the mob is like kind of making their way up to the windmill and he uh splits off to like try to get ahead of them to like find the monster first because it's like oh is is this the moment where he is having remorse and he's like you know like trying to uh solve the situation and like if he did die at the end then it's like that would have hit a little bit harder of him like actually still learning it but it being too late for Mm -hmm. him versus him like kind of having that moment and then getting to survive yeah devon i know you gotta get running in a minute so maybe we cut i think we've covered it you know i think we could obviously talk about this movie for like 400 episodes (laughs) like it's one of the real touchstones of horror but we're gonna cut it there and we're gonna have a lot more to talk about in the coming weeks uh brian myself and guests but before we leave for the night let's talk about plugs and devon and garrett what did the two of you have coming up for the Spectre Cinema Club in January and beyond, what does 2024 have in store? You hear me enough. Gary, you go ahead and tell them about the pod this time. Yeah, we have a bunch of exciting stuff coming in the new year, including a brand new, brand spanking new Patreon, which is uh, really exciting. We have a bunch mm-hmm. of uh, cool stuff coming there. We teased a little bit of you know what you can expect. Uh, two new shows with a bunch of uh, a little extras you know, in each episode. So I'm really excited about all of that. Uh, so you can uh, follow us at uh, Spectre Cinema on, on Twitter. Uh, I, of course, am uh, in Garrett McDowell. You can follow me um, as such on Twitter as well as uh, Letterboxd and TikTok. Um, I also have another podcast that is a Star Wars podcast called Scum and Villainy. Uh, so if you're interested in that, we have uh, new episodes every Thursday. Uh, Twitter is at Pod. 
Excellent. And you guys can find me at the usual places at underscore daddy disco across all social media platforms. And yeah, Spectre Cinema Club, uh, January, we are uh, going through best of 2023 right now. Um, you can uh, hear our uh, best of like list episode and then we're going to go into our specific favorites. But I'm in the middle of uh, the pot and pendulum uh, best of episode and I, I'm loving the overlap and uh, different choices there as well. So uh, yeah, we'll be uh, doing that for the rest of January. Uh, come hang. I'm looking forward to listening because I listened to your saw rankings and they were total chaos compared to ours. So I'm looking forward to listening to you and Garrett and Zoe and your best of and hearing like how they intersect with one another. It was very interesting. interesting. We all really liked the same stuff. So it was just a bunch of nerds just gushing over what they definitely not as chaotic as uh, either of the saw ranking episodes. (laughs) Excellent. What was it? a year i think that there were some like very specific standouts mm-hmm. you know i think that like um and it seemed like it was a very back-ended year like a lot of the better movies came out at the back end of the year so i think that made it a little bit easier to kind of do rankings like this year brian how about yourself what do you have coming up your eyes just went huge You're like, oh. <laughs> yeah i'm I'll keep this short. Um, so over at Movies for Life, we just uh, dropped our episode uh, that's ranking our favorite films of 2023. Um, later this month, we're going to release our Discoveries episode, which is always fun. Um, just the, our 10 favorite movies from any year other than 2023. Um, as for me, um, I'm just going to plug my uh, series that I'm doing for Manor Vellum uh, called Faces of Frankenstein, and the one that focuses specifically on James Whale's Frankenstein is called um, Faces of Frankenstein, the Innovation and Influence of James Whale's Frankenstein. And you can find... Th- we'll put a link to that in the show great, notes. Great, great. Um, and you can find that at manorvellum.medium.com and uh, search for Frankenstein. I'm sure you'll find it. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I read through a bunch of those in, in preparation for these episodes like just to know just to get in and it's not just like the universal monsters but like the precursors Mm -hmm. and also like i'm like you know what next year we gotta do the hammer frankenstein (laughs) like after reading your stuff on that i'm like all right next year we do the hammer i'm in the midst of writing the second part of that uh of that particular article they are phenomenal thank you very much uh listeners you know us uh you can Follow us in, at Twitter at Pod and Pendulum. You can follow us at Blueski at Pod and the Pendulum. Follow our new Instagram at Pod and the Pendulum. Follow me around the street corner and tell me you're the creature from It Follows. That would be fun and a nice way to scare me. Uh, if you have the means to do so, go ahead and become a patron of the show. Go to patreon.com and uh, pod in the pendulum. And for like two bucks a month, you can get a bonus episode every month and some other goodies. Last month we did Godzilla minus one. Last month we did Godzilla minus one. Month before that we did Thanksgiving. Uh, I kind of want to do the Iron Claw this month. I want to do some non-horror stuff, and you can hear some of us like sob like babies and talk about the Iron Claw and the Von Erichs. Do Zone of Interest too. Do that too. Do that too. I don't know if I can do a Holocaust movie, man. man. I don't know. It's so good though. It's so good though. I I know. Maybe maybe we'll do like a crossover Patreon episode, and if I see it, maybe 
We'll talk. We'll chat, Garrett. I like to talk to you more about <laughs> movies. This has been a great talk. Um, if you can't become a patron, but you want to support the show, do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get. It's an easy way to support the show. Like, leave us like a five star rating and write a few sentences about why you like the show. Helps new listeners find us. And like, I want to say thanks to our listeners. Like last year we doubled our listeners and i think that's a huge part to all the co-hosts we have um and i think we had a great year and i want to do that again this year and a huge way you can help us get there review us rate us subscribe to us that helps us tremendously so this has been a super fun episode garrett thank you so much please come back of on of course of course you're going to be a welcome guest devon thank you for suggesting garrett for this episode brian could not have done this episode without you, my man. <laughs> well, thanks. It's been a pleasure. Looking forward to the next seven. Yep. Uh, and we'll be back next week with a bride of Frankenstein. So, toodaloo. It's alive. What's going to be our sign-off for Frankenstein? It was like, game over. <laughs> what is it going to be? You just gotta edit in that noise that he makes. The uh, <laughs> uh, uh. actually I have the growl as the timer Fire, on my phone. Bad. Fire. Bad. Drink. Good. Good. There we go. <laughs>